Hello, everybody. This is another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast about how our political institutions are failing and ideas for fixing them. And actually, before we get into the heart of this conversation, we have a very exciting announcement. Uh, we are now part of a podcast network. Woohoo! And it's called The Democracy Group, and it includes a bunch of podcasts that are also asking a lot of the same questions about our democracy and our politics and ideas for fixing them. It's organized and funded by the McCourtney Institute of Democracy at Penn State, which produces the Democracy Works podcast in partnership with WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. And uh, it's exciting to be part of a network because networks are where it's at, you know. Uh, so, so I'm Lee Drutman. I'm a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Zari. I'm an associate professor at Marquette University. And today we're really excited to welcome Dr. Dana Young, associate professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware. So we've talked a lot on this show about polarization, uh, partisan, ideological, even the gulfs between people and opposing factions within each party, how, whether these are, this polarization is even maybe a good thing, how we should manage political conflict. And we're really excited to welcome Dr. Young here to talk to us about this. She's the author of a 2019 book, Irony and Outrage, The Politicized Landscape of Rage, Fear, and Laughter in the United States. And her work really helps us understand how conservative media like cable news and talk radio and liberal media like late night satire tap into very different ways of thinking about politics and the world. So the question, our big guiding question that we're going to consider is how much the current media environment is responsible for or linked to the nature of polarization. Does it coarsen the conversation? Does it make it easier for liberals and conservatives to view each other as the enemy? Um, so I welcome Dana's thoughts about that and also, you know, for her to tell me if I'm if I, I've got the question wrong. So welcome. Dr. Thank Dana you Young. so much. Thanks for uh, having me on. And no, I think that you've got the question right. I think that's a fair question. Um, I don't know if you want me to just like jump in and answer that question. Jump or, in. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so so if the question is, is the media environment responsible for the current certain landscape that's that's so politically polarized? You know, in media effects research, there are very few scholars who talk about direct effects because since the 1930s, like, there have been none. So <laughs> they just don't show up. So really, where we're at now and where my work is at is looking at media as, as this sort of contributing factor to facilitate processes that are already underway. And in fact, you know, it is fair to say that the the polarization that we're witnessing right now, that actually began long before the sort of fragmentation of media became a mechanism that could really fuel those divisions. So <clears throat> the way that I kind of tell the story, as much as I think of myself as a media and political psychologist, I could, and you'll like this, I could not ignore the fact that there were important sort of historical, institutional, technological, and economic changes that made the landscape the way it is to allow for media and political psychological constructs to play an important role. So what we see is that the, the sort of, you know, sorting of the parties starting in like the 70s and the, the increased prevalence of cable and internet technologies through the 80s and 90s, those two things in the face of a reduction in trust in all institutions, especially media, all work together, this confluence of, of events sort of produce this perfect storm. And I also don't wanna to forget to say that the, because of, we can talk about issues of, of media regulation as well, because of issues of media deregulation in the 1980s, what we have is a very quickly changing news landscape, especially in the realm of, of television news. And so the sort of mandate of television news changes, right, from delivering sort of the news of the day and what people need to pressures of ratings and profits that transform news into a commodity that needs to also generate money. And that in and of itself, playing out against political polarization and these new media technologies means that 
people are going to be interested in seeking out information that they do feel they can trust when they feel that television news is becoming either sensationalized, some folks see it as leaning to the left, and these new outlets that were appearing through cable and then later through internet allowed for people to find places where they could find these alternatives. So I think of all, this, all of this, I'm big, into, I'm big into spirals right now. So I think of all of this as an iterative process where I would put polarization at the beginning, right? Along with these other factors that relate to media deregulation and trust and changes in, in um, media economics and the rise of these new technologies. And then you have on the, at the level of the individual, you have psychological traits that become a part of the economic mechanism that supports media content and that drives the creation of media content. That's, yeah, so that's a really useful way to think about it, I think. Um, one of the things that we try to do in this show as we debate an issue or we talk to a guest is we kind of try to lay out our, our prior beliefs. So I'll do this here now and then and, um, Lee can as well. And I, I really like the idea that you, you have this acknowledgement of the spiral and this iterative process that begins with a kind of fundamental more, you didn't exactly say this, but a more kind of substantive polarization. Here's sort of where I usually start this, you know, this kind of series of thoughts about media and polarization. My views on this are evolving, I think. Over the last decade or so that I've been in the political science classroom, you know, I don't really teach media, but I do teach political parties. And we talk about explanations for polarization. And I always have students who really want to kind of blame the media. And, you know, this is the media's fault. And one of the, one of the intellectual foundations of that that I want to push back against is the idea that polarization is manufactured right? The, or the idea that it's just about the tone of the discourse and that there aren't real disagreements there. Because to me, the, the, the foundations of the current political polarization are sorting around the, uh, within the two parties, as you mentioned, but specifically, you know, the introduction of race and gender into kind of a national political discussion in a really, in a durable and clear way, as opposed to those topics being pushed um, mm -hmm. off the table, right? So it's like, it's a real thing. And then, but it's also very clear to me that 50 years after that, that there's a real role for the media. And it's very hard to deny in the Trump era that conservative media plays a specific role um, in the Republican Party. I think it's, it's more complicated to imagine how media plays into democratic and liberal politics. And there's every reason to believe that some of us have blind spots about that. But I think your work really gets into both the deep temporal aspect and also looks at, obviously, at both um, sides of that partisan equation. So that's kind of how I approach this question. Lee? Yeah, so I think there's seems to be a lot of agreement on the point that it's the, the partisanship first, and then there's a kind of iterative spiral, which is not just a, a type of pasta, uh, but I think is a, is a real phenomenon. I, I, of course, as listeners of the show will know, refer to it as a, as a doom loop. Uh, and, you know, then the question becomes, you know, what is the circuit breaker there that prevents us from our getting to this dangerous point where our, our democracy is no longer able to function? So I think it's important to explore the ways in which the media is an amplifier. And the, I think the really fascinating interaction between partisan politics, uh, the media industrial landscape, and underlying psychological predispositions among liberals and conservatives. And I think that's a, a really important contribution of Dana's book. Uh, the one question that sticks with me as I try to parse through this is to do a comparative thought experiment, which is, you know, or maybe not thought experiment, but just a comparative question, uh, which is, you know, what's going on in Western Europe in which there's also been a fracturing of the media landscape. And, you know, in in Italy, you had a, a comedian, uh, Beppe Grillo, sometimes called the John Stewart of Italy, who then formed a political party, the Five Star Movement that went into government. Uh, you know, so 
I think these broad media trends have uh, been playing out, you know, throughout Western democracies. But there's something I think really different about the way they've interacted with U.S. political institutions that has made them, I think, more dangerous. And I kind of want to think about that as we as we go through this conversation. Dan, I want to get your key arguments on the table here. So you write that, that irony and satire should be thought of as natural expressions of the psychologies and personalities of the, of the left and right. Um, you have a great metaphor that outrage is a well-trained attack dog and satire is a wild raccoon. Um, so tell us why this difference between uh, raccoons and dogs matters. A little uh, zoology <laughs> not, for not our just, listeners. Not just any dogs, Julia. Well-trained attack dogs. Because like, I will admit, my dog, I have a golden doodle who behaves more like a wild raccoon. So you've got to be really careful about the qualifier there. So in order to explain why that metaphor makes sense, let me just get into how the psychologies of liberals and conservatives are different and say that you know, the what I'm going to talk about are generalizations, right? I got to do the caveat up front. These are not necessarily deterministic relationships. These are not fixed. They are malleable. They are just general propensities that individuals have. And the other piece of this that's important is that when I talk about political ideology in this context, I'm really not talking about anything related to fiscal policy. These are these relationships have been found to hold in the context of social and cultural ideology, right? So when like the issues that you were talking about, the important issues related to race and gender that are at sort of the core of the substance behind the sorting that you had mentioned, Julia. So those those are the policies, those kinds of policies are the ones that are really shaped related to the kinds of psychological traits that are distinct between liberals and conservatives. Uh, so what are they? Well, uh, conservatives who are socially and culturally conservative tend to be tend to be higher in a need for closure. So that is, they they tend to be less comfortable with situations and stimuli that are uncertain or that are ambiguous. So why why is that? Well, part of this work, a lot of this work, comes to us from. Um, John Jost at, at NYU, who talks about you know, these different core sort of physiological motivations and these different systems that are guiding how people interact with the world. And what's at the heart of this is how people orient to uh, monitor for and respond to threat. That's kind of the key driver here. And so people who end up, I say end up being socially and culturally conservative because the way that I think about it is that there are these underlying physiological systems that guide how we respond to th threat that then manifest themselves in psychological traits and also manifest themselves in certain kinds of beliefs and attitudes about the world. So though that is where political beliefs would then come into play. So the, this, this sense that conservatives would be more likely to be monitoring for threats means that that is what is causing them to be less tolerant of of situations that are uncertain. They, it, what's interesting, and I always like to say this because it's very important people understand that, that the language that we use to describe these traits can, can seem to reward the left, right? Because it's liberals who are more tolerant of ambiguity, right? And who have a higher need for cognition, which is another trait we look at. That's how much you enjoy thinking for the sake of thinking. But what's important is when you think about it, if you're someone who is monitoring the environment for threat, you're guided by the need to be efficient in your decision-making processes. So it's about survival. And in those instances, it makes sense that you would need closure, you would need certainty, you would want to avoid ambiguity and uncertainty you would be someone who would be making decisions based on intuitions or emotions rather than sort of exhaustively searching your environment for every piece of information related to the topic. And this is how we find that conservatives behave in the world in general. It also can explain certain um, conservative beliefs surrounding things related to immigration or race or um, transgender rights or gay rights or women's rights, etc. Um, because these, this sense of needing things to be predictable and ordered, in my mind, I think about it very simply that like 
everybody needs to stay in their box, right? Everyone has a role to play, and that is the role that they're meant to play, and everybody needs to stay in their lane. And that, that makes sense if you think about one's guiding orientation to the world. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that liberals and conservatives are very different in terms of how they, obviously, how they orient to their political world, but it also, these traits are also responsible for um, our preferences for different kinds of information. So the big, the big question that I was answering in my book because I've studied the effects of late night comedy for 20 years. The big question was, how come all the late night satirists are liberal? So that was the question that I sought to answer and it took me in this whole, on this whole crazy voyage. And the answer really is, in the argument that I make is that uh, satire represents the aesthetic form that best embodies the psychology of liberals, which is high intolerance for ambiguity, high need for cognition, Satire, especially ironic satire, is incomplete. It has incongruities in it. You say the opposite of what you mean. It's cognitively taxing. It's a hybrid form of expression. You know, people like uh, John Oliver, they don't stay in their lane. They're part journalist, they're part investigative reporter, they're part advocate, and they're part entertainer and jester. And on the other side, you have the genre that best fits the psychology of conservatism which is information that is clear and threat-oriented and didactic and presents itself as morally serious and holding all the answers. And that is the genre of political outrage, which is embodied by Hannity and Limbaugh and others. So why is it that outrage is a well-trained attack dog and satire is a wild raccoon? Part of that has to do with the psychology of the people watching them. There is a symbiotic relationship between the psychology of the audience and the aesthetic form that best speaks to them. So if I'm a conservative and I am very oriented towards threats in my environment, right, and I am seeking out an aesthetic form that speaks to that, then I am primed and ready to be told where the enemy is, what the threat is, and what I need to do about it. That is why Hannity, or the, all the outrage genre, um, is a well-trained attack dog. Whereas if I'm a liberal and I'm high in need for cognition, I'm high in tolerance for ambiguity, first of all, people who are high in need for cognition are a pain in the bottom to get to do much of anything and to get to persuade because they are, they tend to be scrutinizing the arguments that you're presenting and counter-arguing more. So liberal audiences are a pain in the bottom for that reason. But in addition, you have the fact that the kind of um, aesthetic form that best speaks to them is this hybrid, right, that's kind of entertainment, kind of play, and it's incomplete. It never says exactly what it means. Irony never says what it means. The audience decides what it means. And so it's up to the audience to kind of take any kind of judgment from the content, right? It's not didactic. So in that way, satire is not able to be used strategically by some other entity. Satire is just the tool of the satirist, and even then, it may not even do what the satirist intended if the audience decides to take that information and do something different with it. That was a very long answer. All right. Well, you, you packed a lot into that. So I want to ask a question that maybe will help me understand something that I've been struggling with, which is whether these traits are really inborn traits or whether they're nurtured traits. And this gets to your iterative spiral point, which is that to the extent that liberals spend a lot of time watching Colbert or John Oliver or or any of these these satire-oriented shows, uh, they are flexing a, a sort of mental muscle of, of play. I was just going to use that exact expression. That's, yeah. All right. Well, we, we've both been working the same mental muscles then. Um, Apparently. And, you know, to the extent that conservatives are using outrage as a as a tool for mobilizing, they're also priming those responses. So it seems like liberals and conservatives are drifting further and further apart in their mental models of the 
of the world as a result of, of watching these. But also that would suggest that our brains are still somewhat plastic and could be molded in different directions. So I, I want to quote something that you, you wrote in your conclusion that really uh, stuck with me uh, along these lines that, that you write, that by persuading Americans on both the left and the right to frame their differences as fatal flaws of the opposing side, rather than necessary features of a cohesive system, these entities and others seek to destabilize American society in an effort to obtain power and financial reward, which sounds really nefarious and troubling. So I wonder if you could riff on all of that. So first, the question about are these are we born with these things? So I am not the I am not the genetic scholar of political psychology, but I've looked at this literature and there is some compelling work, especially out of the University of Nebraska, um, looking at the the places that that in terms of where these traits are housed and where some of these propensities are housed in connection to political attitudes. And my, my sense, just looking at the literature as a whole, is that people do have physiological systems that lead them to have certain propensities, period, right? Now, how those systems then transform into political values or beliefs or attitudes is very much a function of environment, nurture, or parenting, socialization, all of those contextual factors. So I do think that there are certain people who are more likely to interact with the world in certain ways. And yes, obviously socialization is a huge part of this. And some of the work coming out of political psych suggests that some of the, the physiological processes that underlie certain kinds of responses can also just be disrupted by short-term stimuli too such that if you get an individual to think about their own invincibility and safety, right, it will disrupt that, that sort of threat response. It will get them to really feel safe in a way that actually affects um, how they then respond to political issues relating to immigration or race or sexuality. So that to me suggests, yeah, these things are malleable. But if you are someone who has a sort of physiological predisposition, it probably is going to be the case that your family had that as well. They'll probably reinforce those things, right? So, so hence the iterative process. Um, as for that quote that you're talking about, where when I finished the book, I came away with a sense that the left and the right are characterizing the other side as the enemy right, as the obstacle between a functioning society and a devastated society. If you watch Fox News, I do get the sense that like, they think, they're trying to get you to believe that if liberals would disappear, everything would be better. And I think that in some cases, in some liberal conversations, you get the sense, you know, like right now, conversations I had over the last week, people suggesting that if conservatives would just all disappear, everything would be better. And I came away with the sense that what we're missing is that these two sets of, of traits are actually necessary for a functioning society because you can't just have the people who are the threat monitors and the warriors and the protectors. Because if you have just those people, you're gonna have a very rigid society that's not going to have art or culture or innovation. But on the other hand, if you just have people who are tolerant of ambiguity and have a high need for cognition, well, you're super screwed because you're not gonna have anyone who's gonna be able to create the kind of social stability and protect that society in a way that allows those individuals to create art or innovate in the first place. So by using these dividing categories in this weaponized way and framing the other side as the enemy, I see it as, as not just bad for democracy, but like shooting ourselves in the foot because we could not function without the other side. And I think that the me media economics underpinning the system cannot acknowledge that truth. That's a really interesting conclusion to think about. I mean, it's, it's just, to me, what you've done here is actually provide a much more compelling answer to why 
you know, why it's important for liberals and conservatives to acknowledge each other's, I guess, kind of psychological contributions to the the body politic, then a lot of the things that I've read that I've just sort of suggested, like, you know, we're too extreme or things like that. So um, I think you answered that question more substantively. What I want to get into is really, you know, it's very rare, I think, that we get to talk to someone whose book came out. Your book came out, what, in October? I think December. I think it's technically a 2020 book, but oh, yeah. Is it? Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Um, no, it doesn't matter because it came out in December, but it says 2020. So who knows? There's a lot of, a lot of ambiguity here. A lot of ambiguity. Anyway, so at any rate, it's very rare that I get to talk to someone whose book came out mere months ago and, and ask them, how does how are the implications different in our brand new world? So I, I wanted to ask you to kind of expand a little bit on how does how does understanding media and psychological differences help us grasp the the partisan nature of this moment and you know the information and the discourse environment of the coronavirus crisis the 2020 elections the the protests um so so we're recording on april uh thursday april 23rd and there were some protests over the weekend against the the closure of economies in some states so how do we you know how do we make sense of this yeah, what's hilarious is that you literally have to say April 23rd. You can't just say it's April because, you know, tomorrow everything could change. So, yes, everything is upside down. I'll, I'll tell you this. What I have found fascinating about witnessing this pandemic and the coverage of the pandemic across various media outlets is that, first of all, in addition to being you know, monitoring for threats in their environment. Conservatives tend to be, because they're monitoring for threats, they tend to have a significant sensitivity to pathogens and concerns about pathogens. So you call this a disgust response. It's particularly a pathogen sensitivity. That to me would say that these are individuals who were well poised to respond very quickly and very efficiently in ways that would be really functional in response to COVID. What's wild is that that kind of response was working in opposition to another kind of identity motivating factor, which is support for Trump, because his obviously doesn't want to shut down the economy. Obviously, the sense that the economy is, is going to be what people are voting on in November. So you have these two competing forces, right? You have the underlying propensity to be threat monitoring, concerned about pathogens, but you also have these cues coming from the White House suggesting it's not that bad, suggesting it's like just like a regular flu. And you have their most trusted outlet, right? All the Fox News outreach hosts echoing the sentiments of the president, except Tucker Carlson, who for his own reasons was actually banging the alarm drum about coronavirus. What I see is that that was an opportunity for our most threat monitoring citizens to be mobilized in a way that would have been functional for them and for their communities. And that moment was squandered because of these two competing forces at play. Instead, that, that sort of didactic you know, identifying threats pointed to, where did it point? It didn't point to coronavirus, it pointed to liberals, pointed to the Democrats, it pointed to mainstream media, all as quote unquote weaponizing the virus, which changed what, how those viewers would think about what would be the most appropriate response under these circumstances. The most re appropriate response to the weaponizing of a virus is not washing one's hands and engaging in social distancing, right? It's hating the other side even more. And that to me is like, it's like bastardizing what, what they could have been used for in a way that would be super functional for society. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. And it, I mean, one thing I've been thinking a lot about over the last couple of years, not specifically with the coronavirus crisis, although I think that this has really brought it, as you point out, into into relief, as there's been some variation in the media environment on the right. Um, and sometimes some of those actors have found themselves at odds with the president. I've thought a lot about, I mean, I, I obviously, as you know, work on presidential communication. So I've thought a lot about what it's 
what it is to have this sort of um, specifically the kind of right wing media juggernaut when they're out of power versus when they control the presidency, which not only merges them obviously with with power, but also provides a distinct source of of messaging. Um, so that's the that's the institutional lens that I bring to that. So go for it if you want to talk about that, and then I'm, I'll let Lee pose some more questions. You know, that's great. What I what I think is really fascinating, and I come at this through. You know, I, I teach persuasion and propaganda and the psychology of persuasion. And Jacques Ellul's book um, highlights all these distinct categories of propaganda that can be used. And, you know, the, the kind of propaganda that, that Trump was really good at, right, and that social and cultural conservatives are really good at is agitation propaganda, which is designed to do what? Identify threats, suggest fundamental changes in the system, use negative emotions to identify outgroups, mobilize against those outgroups, right? That, that is what they do really well. What I think is fascinating is that once, you know, as Alul pointed out, like a century ago, or not a century ago, half century ago, um, is that once those entities get into positions of power, they if they wanna maintain power, they have to completely switch tracks and find a way to create propaganda of integration, to create peace and stability. And I think that that is where Trump doesn't seem able to, to do that. Now, I don't know if that's going to affect his likelihood of reelection, but it's fascinating that that is the only sort of drum that they are able to beat is this, this drum of agitation propaganda of outsiders, of framing things in terms of some enemy that's trying to be their undoing. And I, I keep wondering, when does that run out of steam? Because, you know, agitation propaganda is only sh can work for short periods of time in ways that facilitate collective action or mobilization because people get exhausted by it, right? And I think what ends up happening is that they end up changing subtly changing the enemy. So now those same people who are poised to be mobilized, now they're protesting the, the closures of the economy, right? So it's like, well, they were ready to be mobilized for something and now they're mobilized for this. So maybe if they keep coming up with new targets, it's possible that you can keep that base just in a constant frenzy aimed at some kind of a target. So I actually want to ask a follow-up before I hand this over to Lee, because we've talked a lot about conservative media, which is clearly the kind of front and center topic with regard to the coronavirus situation. But I actually want to ask if, if our current moment poses new challenges for left-wing satire that you've talked about for, you know, late night TV and, and people like that. I haven't, I haven't been watching the Trevor Noah daily social distancing show or whatever, but I, I'm curious if you have thoughts about that. Yeah. So even before the coronavirus pandemic in conversations with friends and in watching the, the late night shows, it was very clear that the late night landscape was very different under Trump. And the, the way that I explain this is, you know, to Lee's statement earlier about how are these things, are these traits sort of innate or do they change over time? As much as liberals are more tolerant of ambiguity and as much as liberals are less likely to be monitor, monitoring for threats in their environment, they're not just out here like with infinite tolerance for threats, right? They're not just clowning around like, yeah, the world is burning, but it's all good. At some point, even liberals can have their alarm bells ringing. And one thing I know about the psychology of humor is that when we are experiencing true threat, it is we are unable to play. And I think that we're witnessing a change in the tone of our satirists and late night hosts that we have been witnessing since Trump was elected, quite frankly. I think that they seem a little angrier, they seem a little more strident, a little less ironic, a little less playful, especially like Colbert. Samantha B is quintessential. I mean, I sometimes it would be difficult for me to characterize her not as an outrage host because of the way that she approaches stuff. Um, so I think that we're witnessing the same kind of thing in the context of this pandemic where, where there is a real world threat. Interestingly here, there's a combination both of anger and sadness and 
I'm trying to figure out how the emotions of anger and sadness play into the construction and appreciation of humor. Anger itself tends to be less, tends to lend itself less to the creation of ironic satire and tends to lend itself more to the creation of hyperbole and sort of insult-oriented humor. Sadness, I think, triggers a, a whole other kind of humor, which is um, coping humor, which, you know, we could get into a whole other show about that. But that's all interpersonal communication stuff, so. All right, so I, I want to follow up on some of those points and, uh, you know, and, and think about where we are headed. It seems like there's two forces that you've described. One is the, the iterative spiral in which you know, both sides continue to drift further and further apart in their uh, outlook on the world. And conservative media keeps inventing new threats. You know, first it was Ebola in 2014, then it was immigration. Now it's China. And all along, it's been the Democrats. And, you know, liberals continue to kind of view conservatives as the enemy and continue to think about the world very differently. Um, another question emerges or another possible scenario uh, emerges from what you were just saying in that the emotions of at play kind of shift and maybe that leads liberals and conservatives to slightly adjust how they see the world and maybe the media landscape shifts a little bit too so you know i, I guess the question is you know are, are we screwed or is there hope and you know a second question is is there anything that we ought to be doing to to shift the needle in one direction or the other well up until i would say like a month ago i'm a serial optimist the pandemic is turning many optimists pessimistic but i'll say that i think part of it is just being in the same four walls just makes you feel like kind of dark <laughs> but my own mental health aside a lot of this comes from the level of trust that individuals have in their institutions, right? So trust in media institutions. I think that the desire to seek out these sort of more partisan forms of political information and meaning making stems from a sense that the news media themselves perhaps are not doing their job or are ideologically biased, et cetera. So if we could sort of go backwards to try to understand how to restore some of that, I think that's key. And so when you're talking about, are there any kinds of changes that can be made to affect that, I have to imagine that there are some forms of media regulation that would thwart some of the trends that we're seeing. I think when you have the consolidation of media ownership in the way that we have it now, and you have the intense demand for profit that comes with that kind of consolidation, that's going to affect the kind of information that those news organizations are going to be producing in ways that will affect citizens' trust. So I have to imagine that that is one possible avenue. Um, oh, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to ask, are there any models of that? Uh, I mean, and like, how, how would we even do that? Are there, are there other countries that are doing it better? Yeah, I don't know. I tend to just sort of look backwards a bit, although, you know, you could also say that the 1960s and 70s in the United States were very, um, it was a unique time, yes. right? I mean, I think that we're that's the last big argument, right? Is that like, yeah, it's not that we're so bad now, it's that the things were like crazy, wacky, good then. Right. Um, well, hasn't media always been partisan in yes, America, except yes. for that, However, that one period? You're, you're absolutely right. But I would say that the, the way that our media economics intersect with our media technologies to exploit these micro level traits and features of audiences to appeal not just to their party, but to these underlying like needs that is at a different level, right? We're not, it's not like the, the partisan press of the days of yore, right? We are in a different realm. So yeah, was it always partisan? Yes, but be, we have these, these contextual factors that really facilitate that amplification right now. 
Is there something about the U.S. that makes it worse? I mean, it feels like, I mean, certainly it's liberals and conservatives throughout Western democracies should have, you know, similar psychological predispositions. But it seems like there's something uniquely bad about what's happening in the U.S. Uniquely bad. So uh, I I'm, I consider myself an Americanist, so I leave it to my to my you know, friends in other places and, and comparativist scholars to explore some of my hypotheses elsewhere. And, but I'll say, yeah, it does, it does, you know, just at a gut check level, Americans are weird and uh, Americans are unique. Everyone's unique, but Americans, you know, I think that the, the organizing narratives that we tell ourselves in terms of who we are as a people are distinct and really lend themselves to to some of the divisiveness that we see right now. Um, in terms of like, how do we make this better? Here's one place that I do get some hope. And that is that our friends who are socially and culturally conservative, they are, we need them to be monitoring for threats and we need them to help us, you know, with issues of safety and security, right? I think if they started to become aware of the way that their gifts, which they are, these are gifts that they have, right? If we're gonna speak in generalizations, if they were to become aware of how these gifts are being exploited in ways that generate profit and power for a very small number of people, my sense is that the bottom could fall out. And, and yes, I am work, I am significantly more concerned about the conservative media landscape than the liberal one, mainly because the, the synergy between the content and the audience on the left doesn't produce that kind of strategic mobilization in the same way it does on the right. Um, but I, I have to imagine that there are ways to say, you know what, this, this probably the enemy, the enemy that they are constructing for you is is false yeah but but how do you get i mean given all the the structures that that you write about you know so compellingly have every interest in maintaining and in exacerbating this con this this binary us against them conflict I mean, how do you how do you even break through yeah it, you know what you break through through um, interpersonal communication. And as a media scholar, it's so funny because I'm always like, oh, interpersonal communication. What? Like, you know, media are everything. Guess what? Media really aren't everything. And there is an entire world that exists. Well, it used to before we were socially distancing, but an entire world that exists between actual human beings. And one of the things that I am fascinated by, and look, I don't know if this will play out, but in my own little fantasy world, it could you know, we, we are so geographically sorted as a culture, increasingly so, in terms of, uh, you know, politics, religion, and race. And I wonder, I wonder how COVID will change some people's choices of where they choose to be and where they choose to live. And I wonder if that kind of unsorting that could result could have really pro-democratic effects in terms of generating relationships between people who perhaps are not like-minded on political issues. Now, I mean, that's, I'm telling you, I'm a pie in the sky kind of gal, but I see that as a possibility. So I really could ask um, a million questions and, and have this conversation with you all day, but I know that um, we all have, I would say places to go and things to do, but really, I guess, just things to do and nowhere to go. Um, no, I, all I have, I just have children that I need to kick off of their video games. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, and, and that. Um, but I wanted to to close out, actually, this is this, I have to give credit. This is Lee's uh, idea for a closing question, but I love it. Um, who is the funniest politician today? And I think Lee and I both have our, our preconceptions about that as well. Oh, oh, Mike Huckabee. Definitely. I'm joking. Okay. <laughs> Do you follow Mike Huckabee on Twitter? I don't think so. No. Um, Should I? I yes, because all he does every day is confirm the underlying hypothesis that is advanced in my book. That, that socially and culturally conservative individuals have a hard time creating 
humorous juxtapositions. Does he try to be funny? Oh, always, always. He's always oh. trying to be funny. It, and it's terrible. It's terrible. He does but, not but, understand how to do it. Yeah. But but somebody must think he's funny. Maybe maybe you just don't get his yes, humor. Yes, the conservatives do. We Yes, yes. That's exactly why I wrote my book. Yes. So, um, so the funniest politician right now, right now no one is funny because everyone is <laughs> sad and angry. Um, I think that Obama had an excellent delivery, but that's also because that's the style of humor that appeals to me. Ronald Reagan was really funny. Ronald Reagan was really quick-witted and very, very charming and funny. And he was actually able to use humor to diffuse situations in the moment in ways that were quite gifted. Yeah, but that's a- Not today, uh, that's back in the day. Yeah, I mean, it, right. Ronald Reagan died like 16 years ago, but- um, Listen, I feel like it was yesterday, Julia, okay? He's, he's still right. with I us. I mean, his deflection of the, the age question was, you know, I won't hold my opponent's youth and inexperience against him was very, it was not like uproariously funny, but it's, you know, it definitely is a, is a strategic use of humor. Okay. So I, I want to um, push back on this notion that no one is funny today. And then maybe Dana, you will explain to me why I found this so funny, but I think Kamala Harris is actually quite funny and her, I don't know if anyone else saw this, but um yesterday so april 22nd um i should probably say what time we're recording these things given how everything changes um she had a tweet it was aimed at her senate colleague uh mark warner about it was make he was making some kind of tuna situation in the microwave tuna yeah, melt i think it's called she, um she had she had just sort of quoted his video and said we need to talk call me and then i think she did a video showing him how to do it did I just find this funny because I've been in my house microwaving weird shit for a month? Or like, can you tell me why I found that funny, Dana? You know what? I wonder if part of that, actually, this is really interesting. My sense is that the, the comfort that liberals have with the sort of um, personalization and reframing of politicians in terms of their personal relationships and acting playful. I think that that may actually be a uniquely liberal preference. Um, I, I do think that conservatives prefer their people to stay, again, stay in their lane, play the role of the person in charge. So I, you think that's funny? I think that some folks might find that, if, I think that conservatives might find that same kind of banter and behavior um, unbecoming, right? Like, so when AOC had that video come out of her dancing, like a breakfast club dance on the roof of a building, and they were, remember what I'm talking about, that video? Yeah. And then, yeah. so conservatives shared that, <laughs> like, in a weaponized way to be like, yeah, look at how ridiculous she is. Uh, like, when she's dancing on a rooftop and swinging her hair around, she can't possibly be a serious political figure. In the meantime, liberals were like, this is great. She's human. She's accessible. She's multidimensional. So, yeah, I, th I see everything in terms of the unique preferences of liberals and conservatives. This is really fascinating that you say this because I – so I wrote a few things about Obama and this, and it wasn't specifically about humor and it wasn't specifically about ideology, but it was about the way that Obama sometimes tried to use humor and it, and it sparked a lot of outrage and backlash because of its merge with power, um, which I think we could have a whole other conversation about that. But when it, Obama would kind of make fun of somebody, it, sometimes it was sort of objectively funny, but then it, you know, it, it didn't work because he was, president and so maybe it's that also that the liberal um ideological predisposition is more open to that the ambiguity um in the real in the power relationship but i'll let lee weigh in on uh on politicians and humor here yeah i, I mean i i think obama had brilliant comic timing and you know, he, he also had this remarkable self-awareness which i think is key to humor which is a ability to kind of make fun of himself in a in a gentle way but I, your your points about the sort of mixing of of power and humor you know 
and kind of creating that that ambiguity there, I think really does speak to some of Obama's best comic moments, like his uh, when he went on the the the, the, the Zach Garuff. Now I'm bungling. Galvin, again, I guess the, you're going to combine Janine Garofalo. Gar- Gar- yes, okay. I, I was almost going to do that. Can I ask a question? Because <laughs> I'll burns. tell you what. Um, I think that Trump is really funny to many people. Yes. And moments that I even find him really funny. And But it's a totally different kind of humor. And I talk about it in the book. Believe it or not, there's a term for it. It's called scalar humor. It is humor that does not invert meaning at all. It says exactly what it means, but it heightens it. It's a kind of hyperbole, right? But he, he does it by just ex- taking things to the ridiculous. And it's usually like insult oriented, like triumph the insult comic dog. Like that's Trump, you know? And sometimes it's really, really funny. It's really funny. So uh, that again, that is, it's a different kind of humor. What do you do? You agree? Do you think? Yeah, it does Uh-oh. make a lot. I've made you, I've made you speechless. It's the same kind of humor that Rush Limbaugh uses. And if you if listen, if you think of yourself, if you take your um, your thoughts about marginalized groups and communities and women and and people of color, and you put all those aside for a hot minute. And you just decide to go along for the ride of like the guy making the jokes. You can be like, wow, yeah, there's a lot of funny in there. The problem is we respond in a particular way because we have sympathy and empathy for these outgroups. And so we're not willing to play with them in that way. I think that that is part of it. But if, if you just were like, yeah, anything's fair game, bring it. You'd be like, yeah, these are hilarious. I can see that. I heard you say it on a different podcast, and I've been kind of thinking about it, and I haven't really come to a conclusion. So when we when we say on this podcast that we like to have, you know, we like to leave with more questions than answers, that's that's sort of one for me is like, where where do I see, you know, Trump being funny? Do I think Trump is funny? I admit that I don't find most liberal caricatures of him funny. So I have a lot to unpack in my own brain about um, what I find humorous. All right. Who wants the last word? Well, this was another stimulating episode of Politics in Question. Thank you, Dana, for broadening our minds and making us think more about the role of satire and outrage and psychology and the intersection of all of these all complicated of the iterative spirals. All, all, are, of, all of the ambiguous things. All right, friends, we're politics in question. Enjoy your iterative spiral today. All right, and tune in next week for more ambiguity. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.